going to take your Bibles and turn over to that little book that follows First and Second Timothy, and that's Titus. We've been looking at it. We're able to look at a couple of. We've looked at some do's and don'ts under the the topic, if you will, of ministerial qualifications, and now we're going to look at particular. We've looked at some don'ts. We're going to look at some do's, and uh, these are a little bit. I may be dragging them out a little bit, but I think they're really important. And I maybe have a tendency to kind of slow down for some of these things. But I think it's important to understand what's being said. And so I want to, and, and the, the, the words that are used have tentacles that move out into other areas of life, sometimes in the touch areas of life. So it's good to kind of get a grasp of what's being said here. So let me read the text to you that we're in. We're in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And uh, Titus, Paul is writing to Titus and says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order what remains, and to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So this gets us started. We know that Paul left. Titus there in that big island of Crete, which is the longest, largest island, I believe, in the Mediterranean. And uh, there were a number of churches, number of cities, and there were fellowships starting in some of those cities. And so he's leaving Titus there as Paul travels up into the Macedonian area, probably. And he's leaving Titus there, instructing him to take leadership because he is a Gentile elder and to appoint elders. And then uh, he's going to eventually join him, hopefully, later on. And so uh, he's asking him to stay there and uh, appointing elders. And then he gives a list of qualifications, which are mostly moral qualifications and not so much academic qualifications, um, which in one sense makes sense because all of these are new believers. And it would be difficult for these new believers to have a real sound grasp of the knowledge of Scripture over a long time. Although, I will have to say that there in the early church, spiritual gifts were given, and spiritual gifts enabled people who had not developed spiritually because they were brand new believers to function as mature believers in various areas of giftedness. But anyway, here is what Paul says. He says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Those we saw last time are some of the don'ts. And then we look at the do's, which we'll start with this morning, but be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-control, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. We're beginning in verse 5 with some of those do's that we've listed there. Um, and the first one on the list is to be hospitable. That word, philoxenos, um, is the Greek word, is a compound word. And the compound, the first part of that phileos, uh, relates to being a friend or loving. Being a friend or loving. And then the second 
part of that compound word. The second compound word is the xenos, which has to do with the strangers. Basically, it has the idea of somebody who is loving or a friend to strangers, uh, even to guests. Now, we, we think of a person who is hospitable as a person who opens up their home. And there is a sense in which the early church, that was a big part of it. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another. And I'm, I'm quoting from 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. And Peter continues on, each one has received a special gift employing it and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold or multifaceted grace that God has given to us, the grace that he uses through us. And so Peter says to be hospitable, don't be complaining about that. Um, and a lot of that would have to do with entertaining people in the home. But I think that... Uh, it really goes out because I'm not really do I don't really do that very well. I, with being home alone in my house is not very conducive to that, and then I have the cats and stuff like that. But it does mean I think carries the idea of loving people, of being concerned for people, and we all can do that. We can do that and and uh, be generous to people and uh, pray for people, even people that kind of turn us off. We can do that. That's really important. If, if you love people and are concerned for people, then you have an open door there because that, that affection and that concern speaks to them. And they, people will understand that. They will, they will realize that. They can see that. And so it speaks to them. The word that's used for love there carries more the idea not just of, and see, this is where it's hard for us. We, we think of it as being a feeling and that we love people we feel for people i just really feel good or feel bad about that person or fond of that person but it's actually an action word and when you read the word love many times you could add little descriptions like provide for them or promote the welfare of them or seek the best for them or even correct or instruct or even in some instances maybe discipline them or protect them. All of those are things that sort of relate your love and concern for other people. It's not just a feeling. You see what I'm saying? It's a, it's actually a, it's an action word. John 13, which is a verse that you are very familiar with. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. And that Phrase that word love, you could add to it that you could care for and provide for and seek the welfare of one another, even as I have loved for and cared for and sought the welfare of you, that you care for and love and care for one another. Um, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have this kind of love that's active, it's providing for the welfare and the protection and even sometimes the punishment. Uh, if there are people that need that in the church and the fellowship, but to love, you see what I'm saying? It's an action word, and that's that's very very important. John talks about First John, one of our one of the big books. Pete was talking this morning about the Gospel of John and the words that are used frequently. But this is a, a word that is used a lot in First John. And that's the word love. 
And I'm going to read the passage from 1 John 4 and just listen to how love fleshes out here in this passage and think of it in terms of how we show this love for strangers to one another. Here's what John says, beginning in 1 John 4, 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. That is, let us care for and provide for one another. But this kind of love, this kind of provision and caring is from God. And everyone who loves and cares for and provides for others is born of God and knows God. I think that that's in contrast to the fact that we naturally love for and care for ourselves. We do it easily for ourselves, but we don't do it easily for others. And yet the gospel tells us that when we come to Christ, we do care for others. We ought to do that. That's part of his, his, his uh, plan. That's part of the good works that he has prepared in eternity past for us to, to go in them. And so he says in verse 8, the one who does not love and care for one another does not know God. For God is, is this kind of love, this kind of provider. By this, the provision and the love and the care of God is manifested through us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, his provision, his care. Not that we simply loved God and cared for him, but that he loved and cared and provided for us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation or the covering for our sins. So, beloved, if God so cared for and loved us, we all also ought to love for and care for one another. We've already seen that in John 13. The one who has seen God, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, though, and care for one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. They don't see God, but they see the love through us to them, and that, that speaks to them of the love of God. It, it helps to, for them to see God. If you want your neighbors to see the Lord and to come to know them, let God's love flow through you to them, and they'll see that. That will speak to them. God's love is perfected. God's caring is perfected through us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He says we testified, we've made known, we've written that down. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed this provision which God has for us. God is his love, that is, he has provided for us, and the one who abides in this provision abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, this provision of God, this love of God is perfected through us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. As he has cared for us and loved us and provided for us, so are we his care and his provision in the world. So there's really a lot of weight on our shoulders to manifest his love to those around us, and that's one of the reasons why I think that they people are not flocking as much to the Lord as we would like is because they don't see his love being manifested through us as it ought to be. And uh, we, I guess one of the best ways to do that is to pray for them, just to really pray for people, especially people that are hard to love, maybe, that are um, very arrogant or self-centered or rude or short. 
Those are the kinds of people you like to stay away from. Those are the kind of people that you want to say, well, you made your bed, now you sleep at it kind of thing. But if we can, if God's love can be manifest, we can pray for them and, and ask the Lord to help us display his love. He will. And I think that it'll have a good impact on their lives. And so, and that's really what we want. We want the love of God to be manifested to us and to those around us. So there's no fear in this kind of, uh, this kind of provision, but perfect maturing provision, maturing love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected, is not maturing in this love. We love and care and provide because he first loved and cared and provided for us. If someone says, I love and care for God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Well, the one who does not care for and love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love and care for and provide for God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who seeks the well, seeks the relationship with and loves and cares for God should seek the welfare and the provision and love for his brother. I'll stop there. But you see, this, this gives us a picture. So it's when he says to be hospitable, um, he's saying to be one who loves strangers, one who cares for them, one who is involved in people, not just at the home. The home is so important. It really is. In our day, it's probably not quite as, as necessary as it was in the New Testament time because in the New Testament time, the only place people had to stay was in these motels. A lot of them were, were sin-infested, flea-infested, and so on and so forth. And the best place to stay was in another person's home. So, uh, But it does mean, and it does carry with it, the idea that we can love people, care for people. Now, we move from hospitable to another one, which is a real difficult. I kind of struggle with this one. He says, loving what is good. And it comes from a single Greek word, philothikos, uh, Philagathos. It's a compound word. First word is philos, which means a friend, and agathos, which is has to do with being good or useful or pleasant, um, excellent, upright. Um, it trans kind of translates someone who is a friend to that which is good, useful, pleasant, upright. Here's the thing. I went through and and. Uh, Kind of checked out a lot of references. I didn't only write that, wrote down one or two of them because of time. But it's usually, or a lot of times, frequently, the word, this word that has to do with uh, loving what is useful, pleasant, good, uh, loving what is good, is used in contrast to things that are bad or wicked or evil, so that you have what's good contrasted with what is uh, what is bad. Um, Matthew 5:45, which is the one verse I wrote down says, so you that you, you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he cares, what's this, he cares for the son, I'm sorry, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. That's the word good that we're using, and it's a contrast to evil. God calls his son to rise on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the righteous and the unjust. Now, here's this, this text here that's telling us to love what is good. To be honest, I don't know that many Christians really do that. I don't know that, and I'm speaking to myself too. I'm not talking about just everybody out there. I'm speaking to myself. Um, I don't know that we we really grasp what really is good because if we did, it would change. If we if it altered the affections of our heart, if we really guarded the affections of our heart. 
it would change the things that we put into our lives. It would change the things that we pursue. It would change the things that we are involved in. You understand what I'm saying? If we really understood that. Let me give you a verse. You, if you want to look at it, you can with me. I'm in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. And uh, this, this, this text of verses 11 through 14 is a text that's referring back to Melchizedek. And uh, I don't want to get involved deeply into that other than to just say that here, the writer of the Hebrews is pointing out that Melchizedek was the author of the ultimate uh, high priestly caste, if you will, the family, uh, even more so than Aaron. Aaron uh, and his family were in the loins of Abraham when Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. So here is Hebrews 11. Let me read verses, Hebrews 5, rather, verses 11, beginning verse 11 says, Concerning him, that is concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he's talking about people there in the church who should be able to process these things about Melchizedek, that they are mature, they're growing, and that they're understanding. But they're not. Their hearing is still dull. And though by this time you ought to be teachers, you again, you need again for someone to teach you the elementary, the very basic principles of the truths of God, the oracles of God, that you have come to need milk and not solid food. So he's just saying you're not mature. You haven't progressed in your Christian life to the point that you are growing as you should have been because you've had time and you're still in need of the very basic fundamental truths and you're not able to really grasp these deep things. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, watch this, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What is he saying there? He's saying the way that we learn the difference between good and evil is not just by going to the scriptures, but by obeying them practicing them and if we don't practice them then the, the thing that god has given to us which is his conscience which is helps us to know what is good and bad becomes duller and duller and duller and you know that yourself when you're when i was a new believer uh, i was very sensitive to things that, that uh, were pornographic and things like that but if you don't pay attention to that, you can become accustomed to those things. And later on, you can think there's no big deal looking at this or looking at that. And you, you see what I'm saying? Your conscience becomes somewhat dulled and you lose the ability to really discern what is good and what is evil. And uh, I know what that means. I know that experientially. And I, I really seek to do that. I really seek to become, to, to increase my sensitivity, my conscience to be able to discern what is good and what is evil, what is um, edifying and what is not. What I put in my mind, I, I want to be careful, and I, I really struggle with that, to do that. And I don't do a good job of it, uh, even at Lowe's. I, I can tell you right now, there are times when, when I know what it means to lust, and I know what it means to think bad thoughts or whatever. I know that, and I, I should discipline my mind, but I don't discipline my mind as I should all the time. And, and that's that's important. So when he says here in this this uh, passage uh, to be a lover of good, um, he's talking about to pursue and to embrace and to obey what we know is good and let ourselves by practice become more more trained by it. We're told in Philippians 
that passage that you know, uh, Paul says in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's any worthy of praise, dwell or think, dwell on these things. And the things, he says, that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What does that mean? Well, that means that, that you will have, your conscience will be clear. You will be at peace, which is probably one of the greatest, I guess, results of walking close to the Lord is a peaceful conscience. It's peace with God and peace with my, with my obedience. And I don't always have that. And I'm sure you don't either at times. There are things when, when you struggle with, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I'm, I struggle with that as well. I, I was trying to find somebody that epitomizes this. Of course, we know Paul does, we know the apostles, a place that is clear. The one that I settled on was Job, where just in Job chapter 1, it says there was a man, and remember now, Job lived before the written revelation. He had a relationship with the Lord, and he was, uh, he was a very wealthy man, and uh, he had a close walk with the Lord. And in that environment, it says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So that's, that's a pretty good testimony to that man. I personally think Job, and he's one of the men I want to, men I want to see when I get to heaven, is uh, I think he was one of the best men in the Bible. He was a great man. Uh, among the things that stand out in his life, some that doesn't seem like a big deal, but I think it is, when his his uh, uh, sons, I think I had, I'm not mistaken, so I didn't count them, I think that's what it was. His sons had their birthdays. They would usually have a birthday feast for their sons and their honor, their regular sisters over. And Job had the habit of interceding for them and having and getting up early in the morning and having a, a worship time with the Lord and interceding in case they had sinned or done something wrong, that he would pray for them and pray that the Lord would make it sensitive to them and they would be able to deal with that. Uh, that's that's doing that's being the priesthood of a believer seriously in his family, taking it seriously. And he did that for all of them. And uh, he was very faithful in that. And uh, I'm impressed with that. I'm impressed with that commitment and the time that it takes took to do that when if you remember those um satan accused job before god and the lord said you can have Adam just save his life well well satan launched an attack on his house his property his family his kids his livestock everything he had he was he was um pretty well wiped out and it says that these reports came to him almost back to back just like that just one right after the other until he was devastated by these things. And it says, the next verse says, then Job fell down and worshiped God. It said, naked have I come into the world, naked. There's a man of massive integrity. And then his wife finally said, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? I don't know what happened to her. She wasn't, wasn't hurt. I don't, I don't know what, but anyway, because I guess she's part of his body. So, um, one flesh with you. Anyway, here's this man who is faced with these attacks and he worshiped God. And throughout his suffering, he entrusted his outcome and his things to the providence of God. There were times when he said, I wish I was dead, and other things I wish that 
but he he didn't blame God. He didn't curse God. He did run his mouth a little bit at the end about the Lord and uh, make some comments about them. If you have a, somebody look up Habakkuk 2.20 while we're here. And when you get it, let me know. So here's Job. And Job is is uh, struggling with this these pressures on him, and he comments on these things, and and eventually he says uh, that I've heard of thee with the hearing of my ear, and now I, my eye sees thee, I understand these, and I repent from dust and ashes. What does Habakkuk two twenty say? That the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth keeps silent before him. Okay. The Lord is, is in his holy temple. And that's, that passage is in the context with false worship and with idols and things like that. And it's saying that the Lord, the true God, is in his temple. And that all the earth, right? So it says all the earth keeps silent before him. One of the things that I struggle with, and maybe you do too, is we like to run our mouth about things of God. That's kind of what Job was doing. He was he got in a place in his suffering that he was kind of running his mouth a little bit about some of the things that were going on in his life about the Lord and he was darkening counsel as it says without real knowledge. And uh and yet in the true sense, and I have to do this, I pray there are times when I really pray and say, Lord, I don't like the way you're doing this and yet at the same time and I pray about things and nothing seems to happen. Probably you have that too. And yet I know, and I've, I've said this to the Lord too. I said, Lord, here's the thing. Is I know for a fact you hear my prayer. And I know for a fact you're in charge. And I know for a fact you're doing it your way and not my way. And I know for a fact your way is better than my way. And I still like it my way. And I just have to ask you to work with my heart. And help me be willing to submit to your providence, to your will. Because I know in the long run, in eternity future, we'll look back and we'll be glad that God did it his way. He's, he's protected me from myself so many times. It's just unbelievable. One more we'll look at, and that's the word sensible. Uh, the dictionary definition has to do with one who is rational or reasonable. The English word sensible is from the Greek word sophrom. Uh, the foundation sozo, which means to save or to deliver, to protect, to heal, to, to preserve, or to do well. The second base part of that word carries the idea of to rein in or to curb and also to keep under control um, the mind and the negative faculties. Weast, uh, in talking about that word, concludes that it means to be sober-minded, to be serious to be earnest. MacArthur says that this is the person who is in control of his mind. Um, it's the person that is not distracted by immoral and foolish. And don't we do that? I, you know, we, a big James Bond movie coming out, and that would be a major distraction for, for a year and a half. You look forward to seeing it. But it's a real distraction. It's something that you put in your life that is not necessary. In fact, it isn't. It isn't conducive to growth. It's easy to be distracted about. This is the person who's not distracted by those things, by foolish things, by trivial issues, uh, things that become a detour uh, from the major focus of life. We want our life to focus on the things that really matter, to really matter. And, and uh, 
and I know we struggle with those things. I do. I struggle with that all the time. Where you put your priorities? What is it that you use your time for? I, I pray that's a regular ongoing prayer request. Use my time wisely. Philippians, Paul, in this book of Philippians, is kind of an example of Paul. And this we will kind of close with this. Paul is, is saying, let me read it from verse chapter 3, verse 7 in the book of Philippians. Paul says, whatever things were gained to be, he's talking about his, his pharisaical position as opposed to what he's gained in Christ. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, if I'm holding on these things as being the ultimate thing, then I have to, I, I cannot hold on to both the greatness of these things that meant so much to me and the commitment to Christ by faith. I can't do them both. So I have counted these things with loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things but loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I don't know. I don't know if we appreciate that. I know I don't appreciate that the greatness of knowing him as I should. Uh, there are things sometimes, and maybe you do too, when you, you place on a, a scale of value, and sometimes things look like they're more valuable and more to be sought than Christ, but they shouldn't be. He should be first. He is the, the one. Uh, he says that, that um, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered, Paul talks about, by the way, suffering for the gospel, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and not only suffered the loss, but I put them in the ledger and count them as rubbish. That's a pretty strong word, by the way, so that I may gain Christ. I put these in the category of rubbish so that I can gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law as a Pharisee, which meant a lot to me before, but which were uh, through faith in Christ. That is the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul is saying I have to choose between my righteousness and what I had as a Pharisee and what meant so much to me or Christ and the righteousness that I have in him by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, this is an interesting statement because he's not dead yet. How is he going to know the power of his resurrection now while he's alive? Except that he has a resurrected power in him. So he's like one who has come from the dead. and He has the power of Christ in him as well as not only the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, what do you mean the fellowship of his sufferings? That's kind of a, that's a pretty heavy term. And I think what he's saying here is that Christ suffered and he went through a lot. And, and uh, for me, and there was a sense that you know, when I'm identified with Christ and put him first, that is, I have suffered, I suffer for the gospel, suffer for the testimony. That's a, a kindred relationship. He suffered and I suffer with him in that sense. And I think that's what he's talking about, that uh, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, so that I'm dying. It's almost like being crucified with Christ, where I die and being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We're going to be talking about this later on, but I think this process of dying to self and being alive under Christ is what is meant 
when the Bible uses the term being an overcomer. An overcomer is a person who overcomes the distractions and the weights. You know, we're told to, to set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Uh, to set your mind, uh, the, the spirit, that um, you set your focus and your mind on things of Christ and not on the, this world and the things of the world. And that's being an overcomer. Christ has said to overcome. Revelation talks about being overcomers. Not that I have already obtained it and how it become perfect, but I make progress. I press on so that I may lay hold for that which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Christ laid hold of me, and I want to lay hold of the goal and the, the, the maturity and the walk for which he laid hold of me. So, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do, and here it is, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. That's an interesting word, too. For the treasure, the prize, the reward of the high upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this, this passage, we talked about being sensible. We talked about the focus of your life and that what you do is you, you, you guard the affections of your heart and you, you take seriously to control your mind, what you think about, what you pursue, and what you seek after. And uh, that, that kind of is an important statement. The word just we'll look at next time, but we've seen three things. Hospitable, loving people, caring for people. Also being a lover of what is good and right and righteous. And also being sensible, controlling your thoughts, controlling your passions uh, for the things that matter. There's a battle going on, and that battle's inside. And the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God gives us the fuel and the ammunition so that our conscience can direct us in the way that we should go. But we need to listen to it, otherwise we're going to lose that. So it's really important. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for these words this morning. I admit that we are moving sort of slowly through them, but they are also actually, I think, very important. And so I pray that you'll help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And when, when the scripture tells us to look into the, the perfect law of liberty, it's like looking in a mirror and we see ourselves and we see things that you show us, help us to correct those and help us to be a, a good learner, a good hearer not a forgetful uh, learner, but rather one who hears and learns and profits from these things. Lord, we want, as, as was mentioned earlier, we want you to be glorified and exalted through us and through our lives so that people can see the love that, that you have poured in our lives, poured out in others. And so help us to do that. Help us help our love for you and our love for each other to be clear and visible manifested and that Jesus Christ would be uh, exalted in our lives. It's one thing to pray it. It's another thing to practice it. Help us to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, the thanksgiving. Amen.